Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. Today is Friday, the 12th of February. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been? I've been fine, Gary, thank you very much. So, Michael, I we have heard the pleas of the listeners to just stop talking about vaccines. Not requests, please. Just for an end to the misery. Apparently we have made the point sufficiently well. And a couple of people have reached out to me on this. I would nearly verge to say more than a couple. And, like a kind and benevolent leader, I have decided to do as requested. And we will try and talk less about the vaccine moving forward. But as, you know, as with all wishes, Michael, there is a price to pay. So we're going to talk about it one more time now, and then hopefully we don't have to talk about it again for a while. Well, that's fine, Gary. I just like to make the observation, maybe slightly the prediction, that the 12th of February will then be remembered long by historians when it comes to it. That was the day the first cracks appeared. That was the day that he showed weakness. That was the day that he gave in to democracy and feeding people just because that's what they wanted. And ultimately that was led to his demise and his body being thrown into the Liffey after suffering the usual besmirchments by the coup. Um, it's very sad there, but Gary, but you can't be giving in to people and giving people just because they want it. It's fundamentally opposed to our worldview, but having said that, okay. Actually, Michael, I think you might be correct about how the story ends, but I think when we actually look back at the history of TRSI, this episode will come under a section just titled The Great Lie. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I just, I just want to be on the record that I fundamentally disagree with the idea of people asking for something and getting it. Want shall be your master is when I used to say to my, when I'd say to my mother, I want you, it's ever, want shall be your master. Well, I mean, it's like we say about charity, Michael. Most of charity is convincing people that you will only do the things you want to do if they give you money to do it. I, on the other hand, say charity begins at home. If anybody wants my home address and wants to give me charity, we will supply that off air. Similarly, I bring forward the pleas of the people because I'm personally sick about talking about vaccines. Well, sick is the operative word, Gary, because the the nature of this, uh, it's a less of a worry for you being a young and vigorous man, but being an elderly and unwell man, sick is something that I am concerned about, and I am getting more and more concerned about it as this, the days go by, and I see the, uh, well... How, what words are left to describe the Irish rollout? Let, let's get let's let, let's look at numbers. Since words don't work, let's look at numbers. So we'll touch on this, as I said, and hopefully we won't talk about vaccines for a while. But so this will be we'll get through this. I wrote an article today called "The Irish Vaccine Numbers Appear to Have Collapsed," and I linked to that at the bottom. But we'll touch on some of the numbers in that, and then we will move on. The basic gist of it is that Paul Reed Michael said that the country is in a race to save lives. Okay. And if you look at the data for the last three days we have, there have been more new cases of COVID-19 than there have been first doses of vaccinations, which in a race scenario, Michael, seems to indicate that COVID-19 is lapping us. The the, the virus itself is now a more effective vaccination program than the fucking vaccination program. Well, you know, that is a remarkably positive way of looking at it, Gary. I applaud you. That's, Michael, I, I'm known for my great optimism. Yeah, that's what everybody says about you. Oh, Gary, what an optimist. That's everybody says. But yes, you're quite right. <laughs> the vaccine is struggling, so the virus has said it's going to double down and redouble its efforts, and it is actually a more effective... For, and also, as far as we know, 
the thing about the, the virus is you only need to get it once. I mean, yeah, perfect. It's, it's basically the Johnson & Johnson vaccine of viruses. Now, there is a small problem that... It, uh, it may kill you. Well, it may kill you in a way, and to a degree, and there may be other consequences, that if it were a vaccine, it would probably not get licensed. Maybe in China. Maybe in China, yeah. And only in the Uyghur provinces. Yeah. No, yeah. Oh, i finally done it, Michael. I've combined... What? The vaccination talk with the genocide. Oh, this is a high bear for TRSI. I'm going to enjoy that moment. Right. You've got the Uyghurs and the vaccine in. I shall, in the next half hour, desperately try to get minimum alcohol pricing in. I will have a trifecta. On numbers. The HSE has finally put up its, its daily vaccination numbers. And looking at them, it became very clear why it took them five weeks to do this. So the numbers are bad. They are, they are not, actually, in fact, they're not just bad, they're apocalyptic. On the 8th, on Monday, which is the last day we have the uh, details for because everything is, is delayed, there were 1,296 vaccinations, I think. Now, that's in total. Yeah. The day before, there were about, there were less than 1,500 vaccinations. There were 1,454 Third, sorry, 1,454, 354. Yeah, so less than 1,500. But sorry, Gary, just break that down for the listener on, on the 8th. So on the 8th, there are 702 first doses and 594 second doses. Now, I just want to start to take a moment and enjoy that. 702. Which is better than the 7th, where there were 243 first doses. 200. First dose, 243. On the in the Republic of Ireland, five weeks into the rollout of our vaccine program, we succeeded in vaccinating for the first time two hundred and forty-three people. Now, here's the interesting thing: it's been very difficult to figure out how many vaccines are actually in the country. But Stephen Donnelly very kindly sent out an email to TDs during the week, which we've of course got a copy of. So. Up to Monday, there were 243,353 total vaccination doses given out. Alright? Correct. Yes, yes. Now, on Tuesday of this week, there were 272,220 vaccines in the country. Including, however, 21,600 AstraZeneca. And up to now, only the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines have been used. The AstraZeneca vaccines are not being used. So... Taking that out, there are there are 250,620 vaccines in the country on Tuesday, ignoring the AstraZeneca. Which is to say, there are 7,000 vaccines in the country at that point that were not used. Yeah. So, that uh, there were days last week where we did that in a day. So, um, sorry, supply now seems to be such an incredible constraint that even if we became more efficient at actually using it, then we wouldn't have the numbers. I think there are lots of issues here, but it seems to my lay eye that I'm now beginning to wonder, Gary, if this isn't simply a question of incompetence or it's a question of working out how we're going to do this or issues around legislation requiring uh, the, the people who are in care homes who can't give informed consent and the 50 question questionnaire that hasn't been filled in, etc., etc., etc. But rather, Somebody looked and said, you know what, we, we only have X number of vaccines. And if we were actually to go ahead and to do something like 
seven or 8,000 a day. We would run out kind of within days and we would have to announce that we aren't going to be doing any more for the next whatever it is. It just, I mean, I know it's, it's tedious and comparisons are invidious and we shouldn't do this kind of thing and all that. But the 8th of February, right? Because that's the comparison day. We'll take that the 8th of February. We'll look at the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom gave out the first dose on the 8th of February, 352,481st doses on the uh, that day. Um, if you break down from February, that would be the same as us giving out 27,000 doses, which would mean that if we take the AstraZeneca out and we were to go at the same level the, the United Kingdom is going at, we would run out of vaccines before the staff had broken for their coffee in the morning. Even if we were to throw in the AstraZenecas, we would, by the time we'd finished the day, we would have also, we would have, a, the country would have run out of vaccines. Now, as it happens, Gary, the 8th of February was one of the bad days in the United Kingdom. If you were to look at the 30th of January, which is around five weeks, roughly around the sense of time that ish where we are now in our rollout the united kingdom delivered 598,339 first doses you throw in the second doses because they're doing second a very small number of second doses at this stage that number is starting to decrease and you're at 600,000 right that would be the equivalent of us doing 46,000 a day now UK is a first world country. Ireland is a first world country. We are, we have roads and we have, we have staff. We have, we spend similar amounts of money on health and infrastructure. Yeah. If they can do 46,000 a day, it doesn't seem to me beyond, beyond the possibilities that it, technically had we got vaccines, we should be able to do that. 46,000 a day they gave out effectively, proportionally speaking on that one day. And we are looking at a day in this country where we gave out, how many, 200 and what? On the 7th of February, 243. You know, Gary, when we talk about stuff, we tend to sort, I know, our, the tone tends to lie somewhere between the sarcastic and the satirical. That's the way we do it. That's fine. And we hopefully entertain a couple of people. We hopefully, a lot of the time, it feels like maybe we entertain ourselves. And we have it. That's fine. But speaking not rhetoric, I genuinely think we've now reached the point where it's very coming very close that this government is open to a case for negligent homicide. This is how this is beyond bad. This is fucking scandalous. This is two hundred and forty-three doses in a first-world country with the money available to buy vaccines when Malta has bought vaccines, Denmark, Germany. Hungry. I mean, what is going? What is going on? I think you you have two issues here. I I don't think this is purely a supply issue. I think there is legitimately they've they've gotten out of the hospitals now. They're getting into the care facilities and the wider public, and the system is collapsing because these people don't work for the HSE and can move around. But even if they fix those issues and they build an efficient vaccine program, which I've no great faith in them doing there are not enough doses. And the thing here is it's very difficult because the government will fucking tell people and the Department of Health does not respond to any email I send them about vaccinations anymore. Unlikely to begin to after the last article. So we don't know if this is 
if there is a point where the government knows, okay, it's going to get better here, or if it's a case where we should absolutely be trying to source vaccines ourselves now. I would suspect the latter, but the government won't confirm it. We don't know. In fact, we only have this information because it was sent to TDs today. And um, we do know we do know the Pfizer is sending 40,950 vaccines a week. Don't know when during the week they appear. Presumably Tuesdays, as that's when the data was from. But uh, yeah, the, um, the vaccination program, unless the trends reverse, has effectively totally collapsed. Now, I'm hoping this is a blip. Because the GPs are coming on in a week, although the GPs, some of them are saying they know what they're doing, some of them are saying that they don't, the department seems still be working on the um, on the plan for the GPs, and if, if there's a point where it's going to go wrong, the GPs and the vaccination centres, when you have to move from a couple of hospitals to widespread distribution, that would seem to be when this thing is going to totally collapse. Um, on the, actually, on the point, Michael, you were saying about the, how the UK is doing. The UK has roughly 13 times the population of Ireland. Maybe a bit more or less, depending on how you break it down. They, if the current trend stabilises, we don't get any worse, but we don't get any better. It is entirely possible that the UK will do up to 66 times what we are doing in a week, every day. Shameful. I mean, the UK, okay, and good luck to them, and, and kudos and all that. It was announced, I think we adverted to it before, they had previously had expected that by the end of May that they would have vaccinated everybody over the age of 50, which would eliminate 99% of uh, fatalities to this, and which you would imagine would have to make some kind of impact on the broader approach to living with this disease than would otherwise be the case. They have also... By the way, they have also announced that they are now prepare. They are preparing for the for the autumn for the booster vaccines to deal with the possibility that variants may have developed that will require booster vaccines for the population. That's what they're looking now. They're looking at not the second doses, but the next round of doses for for the elimination and suppression of the disease within the United Kingdom and the protection from any any variants that are coming up. They've already signed. But leave that aside. Leave that aside. Okay. They have now. They now think that they're going to achieve that in April. They're going to have their over fifties April, which would mean they're also be in the position. We are talking now. We are talking now about getting over seventy five done by mid June. We're not talking about Israel. Israel will say is an outlier for all sorts of reasons. The United Kingdom should not be an outlier. Malta. Do you see Malta has gone top of the class now? Gone shooting up the rankings, Gary. Which is coincidentally a few days after Malta announced that it had secured 800,000 new vaccine doses from Pfizer. I'm sure the two issues are quite unconnected. So, there, when you said the point. Okay, the whole thing, you, you, maybe, maybe, maybe there's an expectation that the whole thing is just about to sort itself out in the next few weeks and then everything will be fine and dandy and then the system will roar into success. If that's the case, then we will be delighted to be glad to be wrong delighted to be wrong however do you not think gary we're now getting towards the set that we genuinely are going to have to look to ourselves or to some large powerful influential philanthropic beneficiary outside of ourselves i think that's actually quite worrying here is no one knows who's responsible for this program no one i've talked to knows yeah i, I i've talked to uh i've talked to a couple of different people high up in various regional hospitals and uh, no one knows. No one knows who's running this program. 
But from a politician and civil servant perspective, you want your name attached to things that you think are going to work. So if there is no politician willing to put their name on this thing, and it looks like they had to pay a civil servant a great deal of money to convince them to go back to hell to deal with this thing, that would tend to imply that the internal view of this is it's going to be a catastrophe. Or it's at least risky enough that you don't want to attach your name to it. And as to whether or not that will improve or not, from conversations I've had with various people in Leinster House, there are two views on this issue. One is that no one has any idea what to do to fix this, and everyone is panicking. And the other is that maybe people are panicking, maybe not, but the public seems pretty much just to have cited this is what's happening, and TDs aren't coming under a lot of pressure to deal with this. And uh, neither of those options bodes terribly well for this having a terribly positive outcome. I don't have any doubt, Gary, that we're going to be in this position by the end of May or June where there will be plenty of vaccines because at that stage Johnson Johnson will be in, CureVac will probably be in, you'll have the the, the, have boosted production both in Pfizer, AstraZeneca will be presumably approved and will be being used, Moderna will, etc. So on and so forth. So, but it's the next few months I mean, the lag that's going, this lag is just going to be, people are going to die. I mean, that's not rhetorical. That's not over the top. There are people dying of this every day. And if we have, if we're leaving the country, where we're effectively unvaccinated, between the third, fourth, fifth, that's six six days, right, Gary? 1,000, 2,000, 5,000, 5,500. 6,000, 7,000. Around 6,000 people were vaccinated in a week, a six-day week. I mean, that's effectively, that's not a vaccine vaccination program in a population of 5 million people. That's just... I um, Leo, I don't know if you remember this, Michael, in the middle of last month, Leo said that uh, with the AstraZeneca vaccine expected to be signed off on at the end of January, that that would, I believe the, the expression used was pave the way for a hundred thousand people to be vaccinated a week in February, we have currently we have currently vaccinated two hundred and forty three thousand three hundred and fifty three people as of the eighth, which is the last day we have um we have data for. Look, Mark, I, I we can we can go back and forth on this for a good while. It it is what it is, but uh, just I think we've you know we've successfully got some of that out of their uh, you know out of our systems, and I think we can move on as a better, more light people. Well, yeah. Listen, lads, if there's anybody out there who gives a fuck, you know, the pikes are still somewhere in the thatch. It's a long time since we had a revolution in this country. I think I think the, the interesting thing here is if the TDs are right and the public have stopped caring about this, I've noticed a certain undercurrent of um, resentment starting to build up in some public interactions from the public towards no one in particular at the minute. But I would be very interested to see if this continues, if there will be a moment where the public goes from not caring that much to murderous rage pretty quickly. Oh yeah, and I think that could happen. And I'm I'm waiting to see when Sinn Féin decides the time is to come to put the foot on the accelerator there. So I just wanted to... um, there's something in the, the Irish Times today. It was, a, it was a piece by a guy called Seamus Dooley called State Support for Journalism is in the Public Interest. 
Now that it's you know it's your standard. Seamus Dooley is um, he's Irish Secretary of the National Union of Journalists, so that's where he's coming from. And it's all about how you know state funding, public funding of journalists is great. Now I don't really want to go through the article. I want to go through a particular point he makes in the article. He talks about how everyone says, well, if there's public funding, there will be pressure from the state and expectations will change and journalism will change, uh, which I think is absolutely true. But then he brings up, Michael, why that is not the case. Oh, yeah. Uh, A shining example in Ireland of an organisation that accepts state funding and has not in any way been compromised by the Economic and Social Research Institute, which for those of you who don't know, is a think tank, the ESRI. Ireland's biggest. And he says their editorial independence is not being compromised by acceptance of or reliance on state aid. And I read that sentence and immediately echoing my head was the name Richard Tall. Well known foreigner and troublemaker. Absolutely, Michael. With his foreign ways coming over here and writing papers saying that, what was it, 44% of, of was it new mothers would be better off on the dole than going to work. Outrageous slurs, Michael. Yeah, the kind of nonsense that people on the far right have been banging out for years, and we know is simply not true. All of that stuff about people being better off on the dole rather than working and having to change the structure of the social welfare system or that. No, that's right. I think it was it was, it was 44% of families, Michael. Even worse. I, I just seem to remember that when Richard Tall put out that paper, which was deemed to be incredibly embarrassing for the government, because if you've created a situation where 44% of families with young children are better off on the dole than working, that says a couple of things about, about the economy of the country and the social supports. Let's see, that went up on the ESRI website, didn't it? Because Richard Tall worked for the ESRI uh, at that period. He was quite a big, he was a big wig in it, in fact. He was head of, head of hard numbers to do with social welfare or something, I think, was the official title. Tall is actually a surprisingly nice chap as well. I've, I've only talked to him once or twice, but he is a, he is a delight. Yeah. As as economists go. Yeah, well, that's what they said about William III as well, Gary, but you know... It was interesting what happened with his paper, which was terribly embarrassing to the government. Um, the government apparently made vocal their concerns about the paper and how embarrassing it was to them. And it, um, it got taken down from the ESRI website because the ESRI said it had um, serious methodological issues. And I think, if I remember correctly, the ESRI said that uh, Richard Tall agreed that there were serious methodological issues that meant that the paper should be retracted. Yeah, and it, I think that was really what annoyed him more than even the paper going down. But him him being quote, re- referred to as being agreed that there were methodological issues with the paper. Yeah, I think he did take issue with that uh, when they did that without telling him that he agreed with the retraction of the paper. Which must have been a terribly confusing moment for him, Michael, because it's the years, right? I mean, why would they say he'd agreed if he hadn't? And yet he seemed so very certain when I talked to him that he hadn't. <laughs> it's amazing the way people remember things differently, though. But as I said, he, he was one of those curious foreigners that you can't really trust. I mean, the only other option, I mean, I mean, there's many other options here, Michael. But I mean, for the ESRI to do that to a very senior academic who was considered a specialist in his area... And uh, to retract a paper and to say he had retracted it uh, due to serious methodological flaws, I didn't even bother to tell him. 
after the government made it known that they didn't like that paper. I mean, Michael, that certainly seems to be setting you up for a situation where someone could say, perhaps the stay funding you have taken has impacted on your editorial independence. Unkind people, Michael. The sort of people we wouldn't associate with. Gary, in the words of the famous man, you could say that I couldn't possibly comment. Yeah, anyway, Tal uh, shortly thereafter left the country, so that problem solved itself, and everyone was <laughs> terribly happy after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this this, this chap uh, that was so confident about the uh, fact that getting dosh from the government wouldn't compromise anybody's principles, you're saying, what was his job again? Oh, yes, he's the secretary of the, the, he's the Irish secretary of the National Union of Journalists. The Irish secretary of the National Union of Journalists is in favour of the government giving the journalist industry money. Sorry, it's a bit of a dog bites man story, Gary. I'm finding it hard to get excited about this one. I mean, one could argue that there is a conflict of interest there because Dooley is paid by journalists. And if journalists lose their job or the industry in any way contracts or becomes non-union, then uh, Dooley would lose his job or could be financially hurt. Where if everyone is held up by the state, it means they won't lose their job and, and Dooley will make more money. But no, I mean, that, that again is an unkind thing to say. Oh, I forgot something about the Tall paper that makes it actually better, Michael. Oh, go on. So the Tall paper, when it was retracted, Tall himself said that there were issues with the data, but that he didn't think that they impacted upon the worth of the paper overall because they were working with the best available data in the area. So that's you know, a standard limitation if you're an academic. Sometimes the data is imperfect. But your choice is either you don't do something on the area or you use what's there and you try and you know, position it properly and make sure people understand it. Bootstrap it is what I think they call it. What they had done, Tall's paper was hadn't been published yet. It was uploaded as a working paper. So for those of you who aren't aware, the, the difference there is a working paper is it's a draft. It's, it's a discussion piece. It's not a finalised thing. And the ES, ESRI wouldn't have responsibility for it um, it would be the authors. So for the ERSI to remove a working document because of its flaws would seem to undermine the entire purpose of a working document existing. But again, Michael, the um, the then director of the ESI was absolutely emphatic that uh, the government had no contact with them before the decision was made. <laughs> and I think we have to accept that as the final word on the situation. I don't know why, I don't know why Dooley talking about government money interfering with editorial independence brought that story to mind? I don't know. There's I, what I regard as being the single most important work of, I suppose, it's, it's, it's so, between sociology and political science that's been research that's been done on this, was a, a, a well-known series of papers called Yes Minister. And there is one chapter in Yes, yes Minister where the minister is desperate, along with Sir Humphrey, to get a piece taken away from the BBC. So they meet the, the head of the BBC and they have a certain amount of leverage regarding activities of people using boxes at Wimbledon and going to the opera. But the light motif that runs through the whole thing is the guy saying from the BBC, but there must be never any question that the BBC would ever give in to pressure from the government. And of course they had, oh, absolutely. The BBC was never given to pressure from the government. But the thing is, where ultimately, when you have pipers and people paying pipers, we know where the tune will be decided. It's the nature of the beast. Uh, we, we, we saw that. We, how often did Pravda take a difficult line editorially? No, I would say, actually, I think a lot, a lot of the work that the SRI is 
does is actually very high quality and i don't think that there is a massive endemic problem with with the ersi but the idea that because the ersi is one thing and it's academic and it's peer-reviewed and journals and there's the data is analyzed and whatever but newspapers are not the ersi gary i mean if the if and in the situation of toll it certainly had that a strong smell of something going on that was rather unfortunate, if nothing else, a, sm- a smell. The, the RSA is not comparable to a newspaper. Just silly to suggest that it is. And the idea that newspapers are not going to be open to direction, subtle or unsubtle, in the same way that people might suggest that RTE is part of the Green Jersey Brigade, as people have taken to call it. It's just silly. Actually, my favourite part of the, the entire argument from Dooley was this line. Article 40.6.1 of Bunrock Naharan supports the right to freedom of expression and could be interpreted as vindicating state support for media plurality and diversity, by which he means the state giving money to the media. And I, I would love to live in a country in which that doesn't uphold the right to freedom of expression in you know, relation to hate speech, but certainly means that we should publicly fund the media. We should pay Fitzgerald to his salary. Listen, there is one fundamental argument which underlies all of the issues that we're talking about here regarding what they call heritage, media, mainstream media, all five, whatever. And that is a genuine concern which exists about the breaking down of trust that horrible cliched phrase, fake news and all that, the advent of new media, the influence of, of social media, the influence of the in- internet, and how people get their news. And there's a concern that people don't have a sense of a trusted source of news that they can go to, that they can be well-informed and which can be open to discussion and debate in a reasonable, civilized manner. I don't know how you can seriously argue that the way to create news outlets that have people's trust is to create news outlets that rely on subsidy from the state. How can how how is that going to make people think, oh I can trust you. You are a reasonable and reliable source of, of news and information to me, even though I know that a proportion of your salary is being paid for by the state and that is by the present government or the, the political parties that form that government. I don't that doesn't make a hind worth a bit of sense. So, Michael, I I don't know if you are if you're familiar. You you mentioned trust there, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Edelman Trust Barometer that comes out every year. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So this year's one has come out yet, yeah, although they haven't released the country by country breakdown. So I want to give you two stats from it, Michael, because I planned to talk about it on Sunday, but you've brought it up now, so I may as well bring it up. Two stats. So journalists, this is the amount of people who agree with a particular statement. Journalists and reporters are purposefully trying to mislead people by saying things they know are false or gross exaggerations. 59%. Most news organizations are more concerned with supporting an ideology or political position than when informing the public. 59%. The media is not doing well at being objective and non-partisan. 61%. The media is not trusted not liked. But Gary, that's that's the numbers this year. If you remember, I mean, well, let's assume that the numbers haven't changed dramatically. We had, I remember the report that when we did have the, the national breaks down from, do you remember a couple of years ago, we were doing a little job and we looked at the the, the, the trust levels regarding journal and went through professions and journalism. Do you remember where journalism came? It, the numbers have been bad for years, but they've also been consistently falling for years. My memory is there was at least one trust 
survey which had journalists trust less than politicians? Journalists are seen in, and have been seen for years, but are now even more so. Journalists are seen as one of the least competent and least ethical <laughs> classes of people in the world. The only people in the the, the, the trust barometer who are seen uh, in a worse field than journalists are government. And that actually may be a bit of a double-edged sword because journalists are judged as um, deeply unethical, but slightly more competent. <laughs> which is not, not what you want from your from your uh, unethical people. You want so so Gary. The, the the way to solve that problem is to take journalists and get them and get them paid by the government. Yeah. What we what we need to do is we need to take the two least trusted institutions and fucking meld them together because that that Michael that's gonna that's gonna be what it takes to make the public go. You know what? We were wrong about these people. They're worse. Um, it's it it kind of goes into the sort of the the issue with gender quotas in certain industries. Once you introduce them, you introduce the question of if a particular woman gets a job, did she get it because she's the best person, or did she get it because of the quotas? In which case, is she capable of doing the job? And it's one of the the, the downsides of quotas we don't really talk about. You introduce a potential expectation that any woman who gets a job, or any minority, or any person relevant to that particular quota, is less capable. Yeah, and I, I think that for people involved, uh, where there are quotas or quotas, people who are in that sector, I worry about I I remember Joanne Tuffy, which, who was opposed to the imposition of uh, quotas for uh, candidates uh, some years ago, Joanne Tuffy, the Labour, then Labour TD, now Labour councillor, I was opposed to it, and she, her position was, well, I did it, and I, I, I think it's possible for others to do it if you really want it, and I, I wouldn't want to be in a position where I ever had to ask myself, you know, did I get this because I deserve it, or did I get it because... I remember John McWhorter, the, I've referred to him before, the prominent uh, uh, African-American linguistics professor at Columbia, having a conversation with Glenn Lowry, a very prominent economist, and saying to him that he really envied... Lowry, because Lowry had gone through college and academia before an awful lot of the the positive uh, discrimination uh, the uh, work had been done in academia in the United States. So he said, "You know for a fact you got where you are because of your capacities and your abilities." I will always wonder. He says, "I there's always going to be part of me wondering." Did I get this? Was I part of a a program? Now I don't think that MacArthur was. MacArthur's a very brilliant man. But even when someone like him, who is eminent in his field, has that sense of, God, I would like to have done it, it poisons, it poisons the experience for people. Now, you might say that's an individual thing, and you know what? Taken globally, it's worthwhile. There are other issues. There are all sorts of other issues regarding that kind of mandated, mandated quota systems that we, you'd have to consider. But yeah, it, it does make you, you inevitably will create in the minds of some people that question, that doubt. Well, why is this person here? Is this the best person in the set? You're reading an article written by a journalist and they're doing something about the state in any area. You're always going to wonder, is this the article they would have written? And you know what? It doesn't even have to be consciously generated bias. Because I'm sure you know yourself, Gary, or maybe Gary doesn't, I don't I know, I certainly do. When you're talking to people, you, you, you unconsciously 
censor yourself. You unconsciously will pull back the boundaries at times, depending on the context, depending on where you, you feel your interests are lying. You're not doing it deliberately, but it just happens. And that's, I, I, I find it hard to imagine that that wouldn't be something that would happen, at least to a number of journalists. It's a traditional thing in media. In media, you always know who is paying for it, whether it is your advertisers or your subscribers or the government. And that doesn't mean you won't do something that annoys them, mm-hmm. but it means you're aware that these people could withdraw funding or they could become annoyed. And, you know, you could be interfering with that. And particularly when you look at things like Dooley's thing, where he starts talking about how we need an independent board to oversee this. Now, I would imagine I find the sort of independent board that Dooley would support to be slightly terrifying in scope, because I think Dooley and I have a very different idea of what independent means. And maybe also, I don't, we don't know, we can't know. But you might wonder if there are certain types of journalism that they would not consider to be suitable for support. Would the Irish Catholic get the dosh? I mean, they're also proposing a uh, 6% windfall tax on all tech companies. Or well, what they say, tech giants. So I assume Facebook, Twitter, Google, that sort of thing. All the bad guys. Here's an interesting one. No public money should be made available for firms imposing compulsory redundancies or denying the right to trade union organisation. Oh, well, wow. He's a man of the people, Michael, that trade unionist. Keep the clothes shop flying I, here. I must say, I do. the end sentence I feel I really personally enjoyed particularly having it told to me by not just a member of the NUJ, but you know the Irish secretary of the NUJ. We mm. do not need to be hidebound by history to secure our future. Which I think is an interesting statement from anyone in the NUJ, because, I mean, one could make a statement that perhaps the future of journalism might be best secured by um, sending the NUJ and all of its staff to the dust heap of history where it belongs. Well, hidebound by history is a, is a fantastic phrase, because I'm old enough to remember the great convulsions that occurred in Fleet Street in the 1980s, when... The, the the working practices that occurred within newspapers and print unions at the time were so high-bound and so tied up with history as to have been genuinely comical. And I think it was Eddie Shaw had a, a newspaper briefly called Today, which he published from, I think it was Canary Wharf or somewhere. Anyway, he moved in. It was all electronic and computerized and there were no more setters and typesetters and all that kind of stuff went down. The, it was an absolute disaster. It was going to be, it was the end of, of human life as we know it. And, but that led to the complete change in the way that newspapers were produced in the United Kingdom. Uh, but the idea that the NUJ is opposed to hidebound historic practices, as they say in, in, the, in, the, in the movie where it is to laugh. So we said at the end of the last episode that we would talk about the, uh, the Russian issues uh, which the eu has run into and um, these involve the trip of an eu uh, diplomat to russia an eu diplomat with the best title i've ever heard of in the eu michael the high representative that's fantastic isn't it i don't know i was saying to you before it, it sounds like something like out of either star wars or now it's also, also current maybe maybe gilbert and sullivan either you know like the lord high executioner so this is this is obviously about uh, joseph burrell who is the eu's foreign policy chief now burrell went to moscow uh, last week 
And um, it didn't go well. It was described pretty much by everyone as a uh, humiliation for the EU. I mean, for me, Michael, it was just a reminder of um, the damage diplomats can do. Because, you know, Burrell gets humiliated, or what we're saying is humiliation, but was effectively just stage theatre. And then people start saying, in order to solve this humiliation, we've got, we've got to, you know, we've got to be harder towards Russia. We've got to have sanctions. Nothing of importance has happened here. It's, it's humiliating because you accept it as humiliating. No, nothing has changed policy-wise. There's no difference. But what, what effectively happened is Burrell went out there and, uh, Russia did a couple of things. Firstly, they removed a couple of diplomats from Russia, European diplomats from Russia, and timed it so that it would happen during Burrell's time in Russia. And this was taken as a grievous offence, because diplomats are effectively children most of the time. Okay. And um, then, of course, when he was over there and he was talking to his Russian counterparts and there was a public talk and they were talking to the press and Burrell said some stuff about Cuba but he also just sort of stood there gormlessly as Russia kind of went on the attack against the EU for pushing the Navalry uh, Navalny thing against them which again absolutely unimportant doesn't matter it was a press conference nod along and smile like you haven't understand the trans- you haven't understood the translator which actually considering Burrell doesn't have the best English is entirely possible well, I would imagine he was having it translated to him in Spanish or French, where he's apparently very good. But Russia's foreign ministry, who's uh, Lavrov at the minute, stands there, attacks the EU, uh, says the EU is lying and that Navarre wasn't poisoned and that the EU, he says that the EU is unreliable and Borrell just stands there and he doesn't push it back and he doesn't really do much at all about it. A great number of MEPs have called for his resignation if he doesn't resign for him to be sacked, based on his um, his behaviour there. Now, Burrell has had, um, he's had a couple of cock-ups over the last couple of years that haven't reflected terribly well on him. And he has been, I don't know if you remember, story, Michael, I think it was last year, that there were concerns that a particular report into Chinese misinformation had been horribly watered down. That was Burrell as well. He is not great at his job. Let's be perfectly blunt at that. He's not terribly good. But at the same time, he's a diplomat from the EU, which isn't even a country. Yeah. The reason I, I actually want to talk about this is the nonsense of diplomacy. Like this kind of diplomacy. And there's an old saying that um, student union politics is so aggressive and so bitter because there's nothing really at stake. Yeah, but that's always the way, isn't it? I mean, it, that's why presidential campaigns in this country very often are very nasty underneath, because it ultimately has nowhere to go except to personalities, because there's nothing actually important going on. Burrell, by the way, was over there. He says to see if Russia was interested in, you know, coming on board and showing that they're team players and all of that jazz, and also to pass along Europe's strong condemnation for the poisoning. Mm-hmm. Again, now, now the EU is talking about sanctions and how we have to be strong on Russia, and nothing has changed. Absolutely nothing has changed, other than the fact that the EU, which is not a person and doesn't have feelings, but the, you know, the collective whole of the EU has decided that it looks weak. Well, you know, there is, there is a reason why it looks weak, because it, it is weak. And it kind of desperately needs a win at this point. 
I mean, we are currently at the stage of the pandemic where going expression seems to be European solidarity is best served by the unnecessary deaths of your citizens. So they would really like to change that to um, isn't Russia so very threatening. And maybe that's why we wouldn't want to be taking any any of their nasty vaccines. I'm not saying anything about whether or not Russia should be sanctioned for these actions. I'm saying if they should be sanctioned for these actions, they should be sanctioned for these actions, and not because we got into some sort of personalised pissing match over when they got rid of European diplomats because we thought it was a terrible offence. Yeah, but the, the problem is that Russia has lots of sanctions. There are plenty of sanctions on Russia at the moment. And the problem is that what sanctions are you going to introduce? And we, we'll talk about that in a little bit because that oddly comes into the last way we're going to talk about in a very bizarre kind of a twist. But effectively, they, they know that where they are is where they are. They can, they're, they're left with nothing. There's nothing they can... There are things they can do, but nothing that they can do and that they want to do. So they're just left with what they've done already. So, which has meant, for example, my my dear my dear late friend Michael Barry said, because they stopped import, they stopped the export of French cheese. The Russians now have a thriving new cheese industry, and gradually they've just developed across the uh, the nation the capacity to produce these things that previously they had got in Europe, they were now producing themselves. And while the, the tensions are hurting people and they're, that it's gradually winding the, the, down in certain ways. But the most effective ways they can hurt them, they, they're not going to do. So I did, I just wanted to mention how this was reported in Russia Today. Now, Russia Today is primarily focused at a non-Western audience, at least the English language version of it. Although my understanding is that this was also published in Russian. So, uh, this is an article from the editor-in-chief of uh, Russia in Global Affairs. And the headline is this, The Liberal World Order is Dead, but fallout from ill-fated visit of EU's Boral to Moscow proves much of West still in denial. Right. So that's a, that's a comforting headline, isn't it? The liberal, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, the liberal world are the dead. Maybe. It's sort of Fukuyama 25 years later, isn't it? It's the end of history, but it's a whole different, it's a different end than we thought. It says this, Russia has rejected not only criticism, but also the very notion of an external standard or arbiter to be followed and obeyed. Moscow regards the EU's efforts to bring back the values-related aspect in our bilateral relations as little more than a tool to apply political pressure. Uh-huh. <laughs> also this, probably due to convention, convenient inertia, the EU sticks to the idea that the state of the humanitarian and political system in Russia and the conformity to the European standards should remain one of the main points on the bilateral agenda. It's a throwback to the relationship established back in the 1990s, under which Russia would gradually adopt the aforementioned norms and then join efforts for the sake of a joint project. Europe is basically going, these people terribly offended us, therefore we've got to impose sanctions and political restrictions based not on a, an actual impartial reading of this situation, but in order to show that we are strong when they've made us seem weak and because we now have a personal animus uh, against them. And Russia is saying the liberal world order is dead. I wonder does this have anything to do with the departure with with the departure of the UK? Does the the now that the UK has gone, France is now the only nuclear power in the Union. The UK 
while it was very much your famously, you know, it was had lost an empire, was trying to find a role and all that, and people said, oh, so it's second class power. He was still like London was still one of one or two uh, world centres. I mean, there two, was two global cities, true, what they call global cities in the world, super globals, whatever. New York and and London. London is it's a world centre for for equities, for insurance, reinsurance, commodities, so on and so forth. So maybe he was feeling a little bit maybe a little bit emasculated that it has to show that okay the brits are gone but we are still this big scary powerful economic block and we will flex our muscles and make you make you bow down before us bow down before the mighty zog said you the eu speaking michael more of the danger of diplomats did you see the fantastic comments about nord stream pipeline coming from the german president ah now that's interesting isn't it so for those who, who didn't hear, the Nord, the Nord Stream pipeline is effectively a, a Russian pipeline. Germany wants this thing. Germany has wanted this thing for years, and it's been an incredible source of political controversy for Germany because they will literally do anything to get this pipeline in place. So yeah. the German president, uh, Steinmeier, came out and said that, well, one of the reasons why we need the Nord Stream is um, because we owe it to Russia because of those Nazi atrocities. He said that June 22nd will be the 80th anniversary of the beginning of the German invasion of the Soviet Union. More than 20 million people of the former Soviet Union fell victim to the war. That doesn't justify any wrongdoing in Russian politics today, but we can't lose sight of the bigger picture. I think, Michael, this might be, and I'm not that familiar with German politics, but I think this might be the German version of what we would call the Hail Mary play. <laughs> it is very, very, very interesting at the moment because it's funny you should mention that because actually there was a, there's a, you know, Donald Trump declassified a whole lumps of bits and pieces before at the end of his presidency. I'm not sure if it was connected with that, but there are documents now floating around on the social media which are about. German and American conversations with Russia and with each other about Nord Stream and Nord Stream 2. The United States, uh, oh God, 2017, uh, Russia, or sorry, Germany was very critical of the United States because they were implementing, the, the states, Trump was implementing sanctions against Russia specifically about Nord Stream 2, which is the gas line which is from coming from Russia to Germany. And they are saying that the United States is threatening Europe's uh, energy supplies. The, the Austrians rode in with him on this. This was a big, this was a big hot topic. Issue. And there's another thing I see. I, I, anyway, there, there's now a feeling that there's documents that are coming out about this. That what that in fact the Germans have not been, shall we say, behaving in the, the best and most ethical of manners. About their relationships and with uh, with uh, with Russia and democracy and all sorts of things like that, but they have actually been motivated principally by a desire to ensure that Nord Stream Two is built. And then, lo and behold, the Trump on this issue and a, and a couple of other issues regarding Russia was actually the Trump administration was on the right side of it. But Germany is very very committed to this. Now, can I draw this? this Gary, are you aware that briquettes? have disappeared. 
I had heard that peep briquettes had, had disappeared, but there seemed to be something about some sort of German baguette. Now, baguette? now f- funny you should say that. It was announced by uh, Borden that from 2004, 2024, they will no longer be producing peep briquettes. They're now only going, their production will only be on what's left of what they already have in stock of the material, but they're not going to be getting any more material. So, on the day of this, I was out getting stuff in as the snow was supposed to come, which hasn't yet come to where I am and hopefully won't. So, oh, I no, and there were no briquettes. And this is apparently all over the country. People are, those who have them are rationing them out. People have been buying pallets of them and all this. I don't know what. Anyway, but around where I am, it is possible now to buy a replacement, Gary, uh, which is German lignite briquettes. Now Germany, and as I'm sure you know, because I know you're you're a you're a mad fan of the old lignite uh, fun trivia. Germany is the, has the third largest reserves of lignite in the world. Australia, of course, being the world leader. Michael, I I am actually quite a good fan of lignite, even if it is in a briquette form as opposed to a baguette form, which I believe is what I said earlier. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to point this out now. It is the position of TRSI that you should not eat brown coal on any type of sandwich or roll. Even if pregnant. Yes, lignite or brown coal. Uh, and there's another word, there's, the, there's nothing, what they call bitumous, bitumous coal. Anyway, Germany has, I think, 44%. You can also get these lignite uh, briquettes apparently in from Lithuania, possibly Poland, other places. The ones I got anyway were German. Now, Germany, as you know, Gary, is the world's leading power when it comes to renewable re- renewable energy. So, for example, uh, after the Fukushima thing, the Germans decided they didn't like nuclear power anymore, and they have committed that by 2022, they will have gone off nuclear power. Now, they are still producing around 14 or 15% of their electricity from nuclear power, and it is now 2021, so that'll be tricky. They uh, have these three massive open uh, open uh, pit coal mines for for lignite. Uh, one of them, uh, not that long ago, they actually there was a village. I think that moved the whole village because they were going to expand the size of these things. They're like 48, 49, 50 kilo- square kilometer things. These things are huge. Germany has also, by the way, Gary decided that by twenty thirty eight, it will have stopped using all forms of coal or lignite. For their for their for their uh, electricity production. Now, there are only so many wind power uh, wind power generators you can put out into the North Sea, and solar power, while it's it's doing well in Germany, simply because they've pulled back on a threat to change the upper limit of the charge that you can put on. Last, I put to put the subsidies in Germany in context. According to Bloomberg last year, all of the the, the subsidies in Germany that went into the production of renewable energy was thirty one billion euro. Most of that is paid by consumers, and that means Germany is the second highest electricity in the country. There is one last remaining form of traditional power left, Gary. Soft power. Nothing to do. Nothing. To, yeah. <laughs> You're a bad bath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, soft power. You can, you can get a lot of electricity out of soft power. And the thing that struck the thing was, I, for reasons that 
don't need explanation. I actually was going through page, report after report after description after description of all sorts of things about power and production and renewables in Germany and costs and etc. And it was, I couldn't, I never got references to this one. Anyway, the one thing that doesn't seem to be as of yet targeted is natural gas. Now, and it seems to me that Germany is painfully aware that once it, if it's going to actually do the things which it says it's going to do, get rid of nuclear, get rid of lignite, which together today is probably around 40% of their electricity production, right? <laughs> You're looking at a situation where they're going to have to make electricity somewhere and renewables are not going to cut it. And then what, so from, from the Irish Brigade, so why it is okay, by the way, in the greater scheme of things for global, for the global good, that it's okay for us not to burn Irish briquettes, but it's, it's a good idea to stop burning briquettes, but it's, but instead we just replace them with German lignite briquettes. That's something which passes my understanding. And I'm sure it passes the understanding of the workers for Borden and who are losing their jobs over in an area which is doing economically disastrously badly anyway. But, you know, who cares about that? There is one last, one last form of power, not soft power, Gary, but natural gas. And natural gas comes to Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2 is of huge importance to the Germans. Now, if you wanted to really give the Russians, if you wanted to get serious about the Russians and get serious about punishing them, the last thing that they have to sell is... Russia has massive amounts of natural resources, but the big thing, oil and gas. And if you were to say, okay, we're not going... We're going to stop, as the Trump wanted to, we're going to stop Nord Stream 2, you're going to stop you selling gas to the Europeans. Now, that would be... That would be something you would be very serious about indeed. But strangely, the Germans are very unenthusiastic about Which that. Which I think, Gary. I mean, brings it to one of the main oppositions to Nord Stream 2. So Nord Stream 2, by the way, is a immensely large-scale project. Some of the castings I've seen on this, I mean, you, you have the pipeline itself, and then you have, um, you have all of the supporting infrastructure. So some of the estimates of, of the total cost of this thing are, you know, 15 billion kind of region. But one of the main reasons why people are saying we shouldn't do this is that it gives Russia a great deal of power because it makes Western Europe more dependent on Russian gas. Michael, I, I don't want to be unkind to Russian gas here, but it has had a tendency historically to develop terrible faults <laughs> at particular yes. times when Russia is unhappy with other countries. It is weird the way that it almost seems to have a personality. You know the po what they call the, is it the nat the naturalistic fallacy in poetry? Well, I, I like to think, Michael, that Russians build from the heart and when the heart <laughs> yeah. isn't in it, the technology simply ceases to function. Uh, oftentimes... That the gas does seem to slow down and become difficult at times when Russia is being disrespected internationally. Particularly during winter. Yeah, particularly in winter. And and some people, some people in, in Europe, Michael, uh, have indicated that perhaps that might not be a good thing. Yeah. And perhaps energy dependence on Russia may undermine our ability to do things like, say, we think that's bad Russia. Mm. It, 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 a conversation I was having with a couple of Italian friends a few months ago, which and one of them was they were talking about Italian politics, but something the Germans came up, and I don't know why I I didn't I didn't quite get it at the time tangentially. It was something about Russia, and one of them said one of them commented something disrespectful about Germans, basically you know 
shall we say, that a German desire to be influential throughout the whole continent of Europe was not a new thing, and they had to be given a good smack across the nose every so often, or else they would forget that it doesn't always end up well. And somebody said, "Yeah, yeah, do you know what? We, we should, we, we should, we, we should shut down that effing pipeline anyway. See what they like about that." And I said, "Well, the point, well, well, you wouldn't be concerned." And the response from Matteo was concerned. We get our we get our fucking gas from Libya. We don't care. <laughs> I mean, the interesting thing about about Nord Stream is Nord Stream has been being worked on the last five years, and they've so far built so the the entire length of Nord Stream altogether is meant to be about fourteen hundred kilometers. Like it is a it is an incredible pipeline, and they've already done about twelve hundred of that. So it's just been this slowly, it's just been getting slowly closer and closer to Europe. And every now and then someone remembers it and goes, is that still happening? And there's just you know, Russian boats in the distance building it. And they just don't <laughs> stop. But people just forget it. And then occasionally, you know, something happens with Russia and they're like, oh yeah, Nord Stream. But it will be, um, they actually do have a bit of a problem now though, Michael. And it's not coming from Europe at all. Yeah. Uh, America started to sanction some of the things involved with it. In fact, they've started to sanction particular pipe-laying ships. Well, there have been connected sanctions going back a few a few years. One of the odd things that really should affect this, can you remember this? Uh, I'll check this out and maybe we'll come back to it another time. But there was legislation posed, I think passed, I don't know if Trump vetoed it or us, which stopped the export of natural gas from the U- e- from the United States, because which is a very odd thing, because the United States is now producing massive amounts of natural gas through their through fracking and shale oil, and that's one of the reasons why the United States, unlike other signatories to the Paris Accord, even though it left the Paris Accord, actually met and surpassed its targets for the Paris Accord because it was now use it's using so much natural gas. And it has been observed that if the uh, the US started to get into the business of export, that it could actually be strategically, I mean, if you want to damage the Russians, that the most successful strategic approach to it would be significant exports of the natural gas to Europe. Although, then again, the problem there is, is obviously going to be transport. Yeah, but I mean, when you look at America and its energy, you also have to consider things like uh, Biden's moratorium on new oil and gas leases on federal land. Yeah. So it wasn't a complete ban on fracking, but fracking in general was the thing that really established American energy independence and, and keeps that energy independence secure. So if they can't do that on federal land... Are there, is America really going to want to export massive amounts of natural gas? Maybe I don't know. And by the way, fracking could also be the solution to our own in, our own energy independence, but that's not going to be happening anytime soon, I imagine, because fracking is very bad. Mm, well, also, and Biden did just stop that pipeline. Mm-hmm. But it's just one of those funny things that the, the Germans very, 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 very ethical. How do I know so much about fucking pipelines? Well, it's a bit like link night, Gary, isn't it? It's something that everybody should know about. Once you get into the world of the pipeline, you just, you can't get out. A week or two ago, for my own amusement, I read a long analysis on the difficulties in the last 150 kilometers of the Nordstrom, uh, or of the Nordstream 2 pipeline. And looking back, I, I can only ask how I let things go out of hand so, so badly. 
before just for your you, you know, this would be a fun fact for you if you don't know it already before the Nordstrom the longest uh, uh, subsea pipeline in the world was the Langeled pipeline an underwater gas pipeline which brought Norwegian natural gas to the United Kingdom that'll come up in a pub quiz shortly not a pub quiz you'd want to be at. World's second shortest subsea pipeline. So anyway, the, the Nord Stream 2 is, is running into problems in its last 150 kilometres. The EU Parliament has said they want it stopped. America is now sanctioning the literal ships involved in building it. Which uh-huh. is the full force of the American might on a single ship. <laughs> which seems unfair. They had you just sink it. Lads, get off the ship. We're going to sink it shortly. So we will be back. Uh, we will be back Sunday with more riveting talk on. Uh, actually, no, I don't. I, I don't think there's actually any riveting talk on pipes coming up on Sunday. Maybe we could do bridges or aqueducts. Maybe even a wind farm. <laughs> I like wind farms. Be still, my okay. But heart. <laughs> until Sunday, mind yourselves. All the best.